We are winding up a series called Grounded, and we've been talking about the uh, basics, the elementary parts of our faith that tie us into the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about what it means for the rest of our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I was, I was greatly encouraged by last Sunday. Uh, we had uh, on Decision Day, just in case some of you don't know about it yet, we had a total of about 65 decisions. 35 people who were already Christians and had been immersed into Christ said they want this to be their church home, and that was terrific. And then we had 30 people who said they wanted to complete their obedience to the Lord and Christian baptism, and they were baptized. And so it's been, a, it's been a great week celebrating all that, and I was encouraged. Hope you've been encouraged by that as well. But in the midst of all of our excitement over that, I, I, I want to make sure that we don't view that kind of a moment as a culmination. It, it's, not, it's not the ending point. It's a beginning point. It's a commencement time, because once we start this journey with the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, it, it doesn't just end there. It, it only begins there. This is something we do for the rest of our lives. And too oftentimes, people sit back and say, well, I made that decision so I can sit back and take it easy and and just relax. No, it doesn't work that way. It works as we grow in being His disciple. It's not, a, it's not an ending, it's a beginning. On uh, November the 10th, 1942, Sir Winston Churchill uh, stood up before the House of Commons and had hope in his voice for the first time. From the beaches of Dunkirk to Singapore, the British had faced one defeat after the other, and they'd finally had their mo- a decisive victory in the Battle of Egypt. And, and he stood up before the House of Commons, and he said in his speech, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it is the end of the beginning. I think that describes well what our baptism is like. You know, we go through a process where we maybe start very skeptical about faith in Christ, and then we grow in our faith, and we come to the, to the point where we believe in Christ, and then finally we come to a point where we're ready to make a commitment to Him, and so we, we demonstrate that great commitment to Him in the waters of baptism, and then, and then it's the, it's not an ending point, but it may be the, the end of the beginning, and it is for the rest of our lives that we serve Him. It's, it's very much like the difference between a wedding and a marriage. Oh, how weddings have changed in the last 30 years or so. Uh, what used to be a re- it used to be a rather simple thing. You know, after the wedding, you'd go to the church fellowship hall, and you'd have cake, and you'd have punch, and you'd have nuts. If it was a fancy reception, you had mixed nuts and buttered mints. <laughs> All right? And, and, and today, you know, receptions are just kind of, whoa, way out there. Now, I don't have any problem with that, but I am amazed at the amount of, of time and energy and finances that are invested in weddings and receptions today. And I just wish that the same amount of time, energy, and resources were invested in the marriage as it is in the wedding itself. Because it's one thing, it's one thing to plan a reception where family and friends have a lot of fun. It's another thing to live day by day by day by day with somebody else if you've not made the proper preparations. When we become a Christian, and by the way, the, the, the name Christian, it's a good name. It means simply belonging to Christ. That little suffix at the end, I-A-N, means belonging to Christ. So when somebody calls you a Christian, they're basically saying, you who belong to Christ. And, and, and isn't that a descriptive word of what a disciple is? That we, we belong to him. When we celebrate and cheer on the moment of union, when somebody's baptized, we all are excited about that. That's the marriage ceremony. That's the wedding ceremony. But every day that we live with Christ is not an easy day. 
there, there are challenges, there are issues, there are problems. Weddings for the bride and groom are fun, but not every marriage turns out to be so because the effort isn't invested in the long haul like it is in the special moment. But now here's the good news. As in a marriage, you no longer walk through this life alone as a Christian. When you belong to Christ, He is with you. When a man and a woman marry, they become partners in the ups and the downs and the joys and the sorrows. Being married to the one you love doubles your joy and cuts in half your disappointments. Being a Christian is like that. When you belong to Christ and He belongs to you, it doubles your joy in life and it cuts in half your disappointments. Several times Jesus promised, I will not leave you. Let me just read a couple of those for you. Matthew chapter 28, the gospel of Matthew ends with these words, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. On the night before he went to the cross, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said in John 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Jesus, Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone in this world. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to send my spirit to live in you, to help you, to encourage you, to remind you. So he's promised never to leave us. And then to add to that, he said, now I'm going to give you my church. I'm going to give you my body. I'm going to give you my bride. So you won't be alone either. You know, sometimes um, we know that, that, that the Lord is with us. We know that his spirit is with us. But, you know, that's really hard to kind of pinpoint. Uh, you know, I, I can't deal with where, it, where is he? I don't feel it. I don't sense that leading. You, on the other hand, have flesh and bones. I can see you. I can, I can bump into you. I can share life with you. So God says, not only will I be with you in spirit, but I'm going to give you my family, my body, my bride to be an earthly family to help you get through. And boy, that is such an encouragement. I love the church, even with all of her problems and her blemishes and her warts, because she is still the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and our earthly connecting point with him. The church is so easily dismissed by many today because the world tends to look at the extreme examples and assume that all congregations must therefore be weird and unusual. And don't forget this. Just because some group wears the name church doesn't make it so. If a body denies the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's not the church no matter what it calls itself. Are there unusual people who follow Jesus? Yeah, I know a few. Are there congregations out there that are peculiar and a little on the weird side? Yeah, I know of a few. I'll be the first to admit that the church isn't perfect, but then nothing in this world is. This is an imperfect world. Nothing's ever going to be. There are no perfect schools or civic clubs or medical clinics or universities or businesses or hospitals or marriages or families. So when the church isn't perfect, why would you be surprised? You can't take imperfect people and make a perfect family. But just because you had a bad experience with a doctor doesn't mean you're going to stop going to medical clinics or seeking medical help, are you? Just because you had one bad teacher when you were going through school doesn't mean that you conclude knowledge doesn't matter. I don't need to be educated. Of course not. And just because you may have had one bad experience with the church doesn't mean that the whole church is that way. 
The church is an important, valuable part of our life. It, it is the best place. The church is the best place to develop spiritually. It is our best opportunity to worship corporately with those who believe. It is our best avenue to connect relationally with those who share a common faith. Last Sunday evening, we had group link in the fellowship hall, and there were young people, and there were older folks who were there, all of whom were trying to find others to do life with. It was, it was a great evening. It was a, a full evening. I'm just, I just came away from seeing all those people down there excited to know that these people want to connect in a meaningful, relational way. Now, if you're still not convinced about the importance of the church, consider what Rick Warren has to say. He writes this, Except for a few important exceptions referring to all believers throughout history, almost every time the word church is used in the Bible, it refers to a local, visible congregation. And he goes on to write, he says that, that the New Testament assumes that people will be plugged in to a local church, a local fellowship. And then, and then he adds this last thought, quote, he says, the Bible says a Christian without a church home is like an organ without a body, a sheep without a flock or a child without a family. It's an unnatural state. The Bible says you belong in God's household with every other Christian, end quote. It's true. God gave us this marvelous gift to help us get through this world. So I guess this is what I'm trying to communicate. Being a Christian is a commitment for the rest of our lives. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect life, but it does give purpose, purpose in an imperfect world. Being a Christian is not a solo act. We need each other in the body of Christ, and the body of Christ needs you. And it is in the body that we worship together, grow together, serve together, share together, and connect together best. So how does this part of the journey look? From, from the waters of baptism to the rest of our lives, how does that, how does that flush out? Well, I, I think I would say that developing a disciple's heart, developing a servant's heart, and developing an obedient heart is probably the best way to accomplish that. Let me unpack those a little bit more for a few moments this morning. Let, let's start with developing a disciple's heart. I don't know what definition you first learned about what a disciple is, but the earliest definition I learned as a kid was this. A disciple is a learning follower. A learning follower. I had the mistaken idea when I was younger that when I reached this age, I wouldn't have to learn much anymore because I would have everything I would need to get through the rest of my life. Ha! Boy, I find myself behind the curve more and more all the time. I think I need to learn more. I feel like I'm losing ground. Does anybody else feel that way? There's so much more out there, and I'm scrambling to learn everything I can to get through this life. You never stop learning. When it comes to our spiritual lives, the same thing can be said. You're, you're never going to get a handle on all the scriptures. You're never going to learn everything you need to learn. It's a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year process. You never stop learning as you follow him. I like that definition, a learning follower. And your lives are just intertwined as you follow and as you learn, as you learn and you follow. One of my favorite history examples of this very concept comes from Blind John. At least that's what they called him. Blind John, he was king of Bohemia, which that, today that would be the area of the Czech Republic, if you know your geography. And uh, in the year uh, 1346, on August the 26th, King John of Bohemia rode into battle against the English. Uh, it was kind of a futile effort. Uh, the English, it was an overwhelming force. Uh, the, the battle had already been determined. Nevertheless, he, he led his troops faithfully into battle. He was 50 years old, which in 1346 was an old man. And he'd been blind since he was 40 
years old, and so he went into battle with his knights surrounding him to share the fate of whatever the battle brought out. Now, the next morning, they found his body and the body of his knights next to him. They, they died in the battle, which wasn't so surprising. But what was surprising is that they found their horses, and they were all tied together. The bridles of the horses were intertwined and intermingled together so that, well, it was, it was saying this, we're going to go into battle with our king and with one another. If we come out victorious, we all come out together victorious. If we're defeated, then we'll all die in defeat. One way or another, we are together, we are following, and we will share a common fate. I love that picture because that's exactly who we are. There, there's days when the battle is hard, but I love this picture of going into battle, intertwining our lives with our king and intertwining our lives with one another to share a common fate. So when you are a disciple, you are facing off against the battles and the spiritual strongholds to share a common fate with the rest of us. Let, let me give you one more description of those who follow in Christ. A disciple is any Christian who seeks to become more like Jesus in word, in thought, in behavior. This verse says it well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That puts it down pretty, pretty easy, doesn't it? If you're going to claim to be a Christian, if you're going to claim to belong to Christ, you're going to have to live like him. You're going to have to look like him, act like him, think like him, be who Jesus is in the 21st century in your actions, deeds, and your thoughts. And, and, and so let me, let me suggest to you this morning that because he promises the ultimate victory, and because not every day is a promised victory, just the ultimate victory, you and I need to develop this disciple's heart. And that comes from this growing learning process. And if you want to find ways to grow in Christ, try a life group. We've talked about them. It's not too late to sign up for one of those. Try an e a Wednesday evening class that's going on here or Sunday morning opportunities. Personal Bible study. Go, go to our bookstore. Talk to Janet. She can help plug you in with some books and helps that will, as you're studying through the Bible, give you some great aids. Talk to other Christians who are farther down the road in their spiritual life than you are. Talk to those who've gone through tough times and, and say, how did you get through those tough times with your faith? Tell me how I do it. Because because when you do that, when you are a learning, growing follower, you will look like Jesus. And that's what a disciple is, is a reflection of Jesus Christ. Here's, a, here's another picture, uh, not just developing a disciple's heart, but developing a servant's heart. I honestly believe that everyone is gifted in some way or another by God. I don't think anybody comes into this world without some gift to be used for him. Now, you may not have all the gifts that you want, God didn't promise that. He just promised that you would have something to give back to him, to use for him. And God also didn't give everybody all the gifts. Now, some people think they have all the gifts, but they don't. Not everybody has all the gifts, which is why we are all needed in the body of Christ. Okay? That's why Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says, we all have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So everybody is needed in the body of Christ. Everybody's gift is needed to reach the whole. 
And here's another thought. Your gifts may not at first appear like gifts. I've heard people say, I just don't know what I have to offer. Well, look a little deeper. Maybe you're looking for something, you know, glorious, when you ought to be looking for something simple. As a matter of fact, sometimes they come disguised not as gifts at all. Wouldn't you love to inherit a Rembrandt painting? You talk about something valuable. Now, whether you kept the painting or whether you sold the painting, which is what I would do if I inherited a Rembrandt, you cannot deny the value of the gift. I mean, he is known as one of the great masters in the art world. But do you know what researchers have discovered? At least they think they've discovered about this 17th century Dutch master. They believe that Rembrandt may have suffered from a vision condition that contributed to his success. After analyzing 36 of Rembrandt's self-portraits, experts have concluded that the great painter suffered from a condition involving the misalignment of one of his eyes, a condition that is sometimes called wall-eye. Rembrandt's paintings exhibit a skill in using light to carry perspective. The misalignment of his eyes would have removed his depth perception. If his eyes weren't aligned like they're supposed to be, he would have no depth perception. But that was an advantage in the task of translating three-dimensional scenes to two-dimensional paintings. That, what we would sometimes call a handicap, became an advantage to him. Harvard Medical School neurobiologist Margaret Livingstone observed, she said, it illustrates that disabilities are not always disabilities. They may be assets in a different realm. Just think, if Rembrandt had been able to see clearly, we may not know there was a Rembrandt, and he may not have become a famous artist. God is looking for a servant heart. He's looking for you to take whatever you have and say, here it is, God. I'm going to give it back to you. The other aspect about gifts comes from our willingness to let God use us or our resistance for God to use us. Now, in, in electrical terms, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to put this down in layman terms because I'm a layman when it comes to electrical things. So, we've got plenty of electrical engineers here in the congregation that can straighten you out afterwards if I mess you up with what I'm getting ready to say, all right? In electricity, you have conductors and there are resistors, and there are insulators. A conductor is, is that material which the atoms share the electrons so that the power of energy moves clearly through that conduit. Then there are insulators, things like rubber and wood and glass. The old glass insulators used to be on telephone poles. They don't, they don't allow any thing to pass through them. The, the, the energy just stops right there. And then you have the resistors. They, they allow the energy to go through, but they slow it down, all right? And, and, and I think that you get all three of those in the body of Christ. You get people who say, Lord, use me as a conduit of your grace, of your mercy, of your message. And then you get insulators. Not through me, God. Not through me. And then you have the resistors who, who basically say, not so fast, Lord, not so fast. Slow it down. I, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do this. So I ask you this morning, in terms of the power of God's grace and mercy and message flowing through you, are you a conduit, a conductor? Are you an insulator? Or are you a resistor? Only one accomplishes what a disciple needs to be. This is Connection Sunday. You, you may be saying, well, I've not plugged in. Well, it's time to plug in. 
Okay? If you're, if you're a Christian, stop being an insulator or a resistor and become a conductor. And, and if you say, I don't know where to start. Well, start this morning. All, you see all these people in, the, in these uh, bright fluorescent green t-shirts that are sitting around the congregation? If we turned the lights off, they would still glow. All right? Uh, I noticed earlier that they were shining brightly in that darker light. After the service is over, we'll tell you a little bit more about this later, I want you to see them out in the foyer. Go up and, and check with them, and they will get you to the right place because you may say, I'm not sure where I can really serve. Let them help you find a place. And even if it's, if it's something as simple as shaking a hand and smiling at people when they come, start someplace being connected and serving and being this disciple that keeps growing as a conduit of the grace of God. We'll help you find your niche. Just don't leave without helping do that. Last thing, developing an obedient heart. There's this little known, I think it's a little known, inspirational story out of the book of Jeremiah chapter 35, and it involves the clan called the Rechabites. Now, it appears that they were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and, and it appears that if that is the case, then they wouldn't have been a part of the, of the Jewish community originally. They probably weren't there at the time of the uh, Mount Sinai giving of the, of the law. But they're an obscure group. And, and this, as the story goes, they were descendants uh, given uh, this message of God through one of their forefathers, Jonadab. And Jonadab said to the... Uh, his descendants, he said, here's what God wants from you. Uh, you're not to drink wine. You're not to plant vineyards. You're not to sow seeds. You're not to build houses. You're not to settle down in the land. They were to continue to live as nomads. For generations, they remained faithful to those commands. I mean, culture hardly took notice of the Rechabites. They were like this kind of this, this strange group out there that, that lived like nomads. Well, everybody else had learned that you settle down and you have families and homes and farms and that kind of thing. And then Centuries later, generations go by, centuries go by, and, and the Israelites are on the verge of exile because they have ceased being faithful to God. They've ceased being obedient to God. And God comes to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah, invite the Rechabites to come to Jerusalem and into my house and offer them some wine to drink. And so Jeremiah extended the invitation, and they came into town, and they came to the house of the Lord, and, and, and Jeremiah set wine and cups before them and said, here, refresh yourselves from your journey. And they stepped back, and they said, no, no. We made a vow generations ago that we would not drink wine, and we would not plant vineyards, and we would not sow grain, and we would not build houses, and we would live as nomads. We made that promise to God. We have never broken that promise, and we're not going to break it now. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, God said, okay, you use the Rechabites as an illustration to the rest of the Israelites of what obedience means to me. You hold these people up as a grand example of obedience. And then God made this promise to the Rechabites. He said, you will always have a descendant who will be serving my name. Obedience can never be taken Lightly. John Ortberg wrote, he said, it is not the task we do that makes us great in God's eyes. It is the attitude in which we do it. Obedience isn't always glamorous, but it is God honoring. God would rather you be obedient than accomplish something great. Maybe, maybe I've got it backwards. Maybe the greatest thing you can do is be 
obedient. Maybe in the courts of heaven, in the eyes of God, the greatest thing you can do is be obedient to God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do I demonstrate my love for God? By obeying him. I like the way the message translates John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, show it by doing what I've told you. If you feel like you can do nothing else, the greatest gift you can give back to God is being obedient to what his word teaches. That is what true discipleship is all about. Some of you are going to say, well, I'm too young to make a difference. Are you too young to be obedient? If you're too young to obey, maybe, but most of the young people I know around here aren't too young to obey. Besides, I'm regularly inspired by the young people in this congregation who take challenges to raise money for wells in Africa, or they go on mission trips way out of their comfort zone to make a difference, who serve in the nurseries, who help downstairs, who do all kinds of things in our community. I'm inspired by our young people. You're not too young to make a difference. You're not too young to be obedient. I know people on the other side of the coin say, well, I'm too old to make a difference. You're not too old to be obedient, are you? You never get too old to be obedient. You can make a difference. You can be obedient in your older age. You can inspire others by not taking what your peers take as your retirement, and that is a rocking chair. You can do great things to the very end of your life till you draw your last breath. This week, I read about Mary Creason, who is flying her own plane with the goal of landing in all 48 continental states. Did I mention she is 90 years old? Flying her plane to all 48 of the continental states. Her husband died last year. And so she's asked a, a younger person to go along with her as her co-pilot, 86-year-old Betty Young. <laughs> I love that passion. I love that style. I love that energy. Who's saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to sit down. I'm just going to keep the adventure going as long as I have life and breath. If you're an older person, would you realize that you have so much to pour into our young people that they are anxious, they want to know what you did? To navigate through this life. You have a lot that you can do. Take your energy, take your experience, and use it as a conduit for the grace of God. Maybe it's nothing more than growing old with a positive, encouraging spirit, but that will make a difference. Soar high for God. You're not too young. You're not too old. Everybody in the kingdom can be obedient, and discipleship begins with obedience. It's not the person who begins the race that wears the name disciple. It's the one who finishes the race. We are his followers. Let us imitate him in thought, word, and behavior. Let us be his conduit of grace for the rest of our lives.